All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from Woodstock, New York, on a very blustery fall day. Yay, fall. Love fall. And yes, I am joined, as usual, by everyone's favorite New Jerseyan, Former page to Senator Bob Cash in Pockets Menendez. Oh, no, that's not true. What? Come on. Everyone is innocent till proven guilty. (laughs) At least twice. Can't explain the gold bars. No explanation. Who doesn't have gold gold bars sewn into their jacket suit pockets? When that was the cash, I think, oh, maybe it's the gold bars also. I don't know. Oh, boy. New Jersey. We love you anyway. Oh, yeah. Even though you've got you've got Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa wasn't ours. But he's but we we, we strongly suspect he's in New Jersey. Well, a permanent Jersey resident now. That's right. Yeah. Um, Once again, mentioning things that probably no one knows what we're talking about. Did I say Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton yet? I don't remember. Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. Yes. How are you? I'm doing doing well. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the the fall foliage and weather coming and all and I was looking at my students' photos today. We had our first huge, you know, big critique on their first assignment and exciting. And, I, and I'm noticing, you know, <laughs> the trees changing and the and I, I realize I the first time I noticed it was in photos. I've been so busy. I haven't been paying attention to oh, the actual is, world around oh, me. Oh <laughs> no. That's sad. Come on up. Oh, by oh, the way, yes. if you'd like to come up, um mm. I'm building another woodshed on Sunday. Oh. So if you're dying for a project, please do come up and help. Yeah, let's see what no, we can I don't, do. Not help. Yeah. Uh, hang out. Hang out. I'm not selling <laughs> this well. God damn it. My Tom Sawyer skills are getting rusty. That's right. <laughs> come up, have a hot chocolate or a beer. Sit yeah. on the deck that you built. Look at the leaves. Oh, yes. And maybe an, something else will come up fun to do that involves a hammer and some nails. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. I actually enjoy that work. Yes. So, yeah, it's, I actually started Morning Fires about a, a week ago. Mm, it's been nice. mid to high 40s um, in the mornings, which is fantastic. And But that's, you know, what it is outside is what it is inside because the Airstream <laughs> has no insulation. So, <laughs> but I will say once I heat it up, once I get the fire going... It right. does hold the heat. It's it's anyway, so it doesn't leak out, but it is mm-hmm. nippy first thing. So. Oh yeah, you you and you you'll feel it long before we will. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and I yeah, think I have yeah. a new guest who's trying to avoid the a uh, cooler weather. I heard is some is this of the forest creature <laughs> nature? <laughs> Yes, Woodland it is. Creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, heard a little rustling. Oh, yeah. It's uh-huh. funny. It's it's. I I think uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mouse is basically positive that their 
in the front console, which is actually a storage area and a console area, but it's also it's built into the curve in the front. I have one in the back also. Mm-hmm. But it's also where the batteries are, which are really warm. Oh, that's that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to yeah. have a humane trap, so I'll, I'll catch this little fellow with some delicious organic peanut butter. But um, <laughs> I don't even mind so much if they just stay in like that front console. But the problem is that Peanut goes nuts. So she already knows. And it's like, it's just in such a small space. It, it's too it's too much insanity. It turns into like a very slapsticky Disney film. So <laughs> anyway, okay, moving on. Wait, once again, forgetting what we're doing. Yeah. This is a podcast about photography. <laughs> and we're, we're coming back from a, a pretty good break from yes. putting out episodes, not not yes. working, but putting out episodes. You've been quite busy. I've been quite busy. We yep. have some... Some great shows coming up uh, on location, and yes. I don't want to. I don't want to say too much about that, but we're you know that should be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we're going on yep. a trip together. That's going to be super fun. Yeah, that'll be really great, and it's with really good people, and so we should have some really nice episodes coming up too. So we have a couple of. We're going to do these announcements fairly quickly, so we can get to the episode. I'll start if you don't mm-hmm. mind. I I just want to remind people that the photo work. Foundation Fellowship, which is a, a mentoring program that serves early career photographers in developing a body of work where we pair the fellow with a great mentor and we have great mentors lined up. The applications for that program are open now until October 15th. Um, for all of the details, go to photowork.foundation and check out the Photowork Fellowship. And from our friends and partners over at Picture House in the Small Dark Room, they have been running a free educational series and they're wrapping that up. So on October 3rd, they have their last event of this program, which is a darkroom Q&A with their printers. They've also been running some artist talks and they have some coming up on November 4th, Saturday, November 4th. They have Ben Brody, uh, who is an educator and picture editor and has worked on projects in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Then on Saturday, December 2nd, they have Adriana Alt, who is releasing a book published by Void called Levy. You should call them uh, or uh, check out their Instagram or website to find out what time these events are. But it's uh, October 3rd for the printing Q&A, November 4th for Ben Brody, and December 2nd for Adriana Alt. And as always, they are at PHTSDR, Picture House the Small Darkroom.com, and that is also their Instagram handle. Those all sound great. I don't know Ben, but I know Addie Alt, who's a great photographer, and everyone should go to that. That's going to be really mm-hmm. fun. No, no disrespect yep. to Ben. Sorry. I just happened to. <laughs> just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> just don't know. Well, check um, out Ben Brody's website. The, uh, his bio is, looks really interesting. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, let's get to it. We mm-hmm. had, uh, this is a great episode with the photographer, Lois Connor. And it's a really beautiful episode. You and I were talking for quite a while before we started recording. It was our first chance to talk about the episode. And I th- it seems like we were both really struck by 
one particular thing with Lois, although many things I don't want to <laughs> take away from the episode and Lois's <laughs> sort of journey in its entirety, but it seems like we were both really struck by Lois's sort of openness as she was growing into the artist she is now and how that openness to different opportunities, mm-hmm. let's say, really changed her life. And I was saying to you that I don't think I was like that when I was young. I thought I knew best. And I don't think I was quite as open to other people thinking they knew what was right. might be good for me or or whatever. And it, it just is really, it really struck me that there were some really pivotal moments where, because Lois was sort of open to other people's, you know, opinions, in, in particularly in school, that it really this to say worked out well for her would absolutely yeah you know it's it, it, yeah. i don't know how common it is for someone to be able to point to even just one very pivotal moment and and see how it changed the whole trajectory of your life but that that happened to lois right. and and that happened you know throughout this whole episode you'll hear that lois is just you know she met these great people and she was open to being influenced by them and that's you right. know yeah. someone like lois could could brag all day long about her own career and 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 what she's done and she you know she's just very humble, humble. about everything yeah yes yep now, it's really beautiful. So I, I hope people enjoyed as much as you and I. I loved talking with Lois. And even though I've known her for a long time, there was a lot I didn't know that was just fascinating. And yeah. And th- there's one other thing I wanted to mention in terms of, of, of practice is Lois talks about this idea of being prepared. Uh, because as, as most people know of Lois's work, she's spent quite a f- amount of time photographing in China and still ongoing today. But but this idea mm-hmm. of being prepared and knowing history and having an understanding of place before you go, but then in a way kind of letting go of that and just being able to respond to a place. I think that's it's such a mm-hmm. wonderful way to... Um, there's such a great balance to her work in this sort of academic knowledge and understanding and art history, and then also just making this beautiful work that's a response to where she is. Yeah, I completely second that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, why don't we get to the episode? We've done the Michael and Sasha <laughs> routine long enough. And <laughs> here to entertain nobody but ourselves. Um, <laughs> always successful. <laughs> Well, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Lois Connor. Lois Connor, welcome to the PhotoWork podcast. It's so great to have you on. We've known each other a really long time through a friend. We'll talk about that. But it's lovely to get to hang out with you this morning. I just feel like it's Lois and Sasha going to get to hang out and talk. So thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. It's a great honor. I mean, I've listened to the podcast. I think they're terrific. Thank you. I just hope I can live up to it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not worried. So you and I have known each other a long time because you are very, very close friends with one of my closest friends, Matthew Pillsbury. Yes. And we've been lucky enough to, Matthew is an amazing chef, so we've both been lucky enough to have many delicious meals at the Pillsbury residence. And I've gotten to know you a bit. 
Um, yeah, it's just it's just really great to have this opportunity. Not only do I know your work fairly well and love your work, but I know a lot of people who feel that way. And you come up in conversation all the time. I mean, you have a lot of people out there who are really huge um, fans of not just your individual images or bodies of work, but the way you live your life as a photographer. And so I just hope that the people listening to the podcast, if they aren't familiar with your work or familiar enough, will really get in there and absorb it and will understand um, what I'm talking about because you've lived an incredible life as an artist. So we start every show after I gush about, well, I don't always gush, but I did just there. We start every show with the artist's, you know, sort of origin story and how they became a photographer and what their journey's been. So if you could tell us about yourself and, and just, you know, take your time and let us know how you arrived where you are today. From the time I was born or? <laughs> yeah, where were you born? Where did you grow I... up? I was uh, born on Long Island. Uh, we didn't stay there very long, only a couple of years. And then my father worked for DuPont. So we moved to Delaware. And we lived in Delaware for about eight or nine years. Then we moved to Nashville. And when we moved to Nashville, I was nine. And I feel like that's where your real solid memories really began. And it's also when my father gave me a camera. He gave me a double lens um, reflexive Yashica. He showed me how to use it and tried to explain f-stops and shutter speeds, but I, I really didn't understand all that too much later, but I shot everything like at 5.6 or f8 at 125th. So the interiors aren't very good, but the exteriors are pretty great. And I spent most of my time photographing people outside. So we lived there till I was 13. Okay, and then wait, my, before you go on, I just, yeah. I, I, I can't let it go. Can you just explain to people why your interiors at 5.6 and F8 were not good, but you <laughs> <laughs> not everyone's uh, going to understand that. Well, I, I'm not even sure. I was using 620 film that I knew, um, but I don't know what the speed of the film was, but the light was too low in the interiors to, to get a proper exposure. Yeah. So you were taking light. dark, moody probably very sharp <laughs> with very little depth of field. <laughs> kind of um, more like uh, almost imaginary interiors yeah. because they were really <laughs> underexposed at 125th. <laughs> right. Unless there's a lot of light streaming in through the windows. I mean, sometimes I got lucky. Yeah. And um, he also taught me how to develop film and set up a little place where I could develop it and he gave me a little printing frame with a light bulb inside of it, which I still have. It's so beautiful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And then he showed me a lot of magazines with photography. He was electrical, chemical, optical engineer, so he used to get all these um, magazines, and you know they would have commercial photographers, but also people mm -hmm. like Philippe Halsman. And then when we got ready to move up to up north again, we ended up moving to Pennsylvania. And my parents, when they found the house, they were very excited to tell me that we were going to live next door to an artist. And I immediately asked him, this is age 13 by then, um, if I could be his apprentice. I didn't even know what that meant, but I knew that that's what I wanted. <laughs> and um, they asked him, and he said yes. So he was 
you know, my guide and my mentor and my friend. And I, I don't know what I would have done without him. He was a painter and a ceramicist. And I went out in the landscape and I photographed and he painted and then I painted and he painted. And, and it was just, it was amazing. Sounds amazing. Yeah. You know, we got our water for the watercolors in the stream. And this is a beautiful, really beautiful part of Pennsylvania, Chester County. Andrew Wyeth country. Yeah. Andrew Wyeth country. I, you know, I knew one of his sons. Mm-hmm. And... You know, people understand art there. There's, you know, the little art museum, the Wyeth Art Museum, and Philadelphia is not far away. But with Jimmy, I used to go. He was James Gaynor. He taught at Swarthmore College and Swarthmore High School. And I used to go with Jimmy to Philadelphia to exhibitions and also to New York. I saw the Walker Evans show at the MoMA in 1971 with Jimmy. Wow. I know. <laughs> wow, that, that, wow, we have to get back to that. Okay. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I saw Andy Warhol in small exhibitions uh, in the 60s, and I uh, saw a lot of stuff. It's, it's just like, what if I hadn't met Jimmy? <laughs> right. So, you know, I went to high school, graduated from high school in Chester County, Unionville High School. Then I... Um, I was really interested in art. I was always making photographs, but I also was kind of obsessed with fashion, and I wanted to study fashion design. But I, you know, at 18, you're not really quite ready to, I don't think, I wasn't anyway, to move really far away. So I went to the University of Delaware for two years, and I did um, drawing and painting and a few art history classes, but... I took my first photograph, formal photography class there. And then I kept very close contact with Jimmy, and he said, well, if you want to study fashion, you should think about FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology. So after two years at University of Delaware, I decided to move to New York. That was in 1971, and they were just finishing the World Trade Centers, and I moved to New York. That certainly changed my life, too. Mm-hmm. I, I had to find a job. I could only afford to go to school at night. But after three days, I got a job at the United Nations, and I ended up working there 13 years. And then while at the UN, I went to school at night. I took other classes because even though I'm working full-time and I'm going to school at night, it wasn't every night, and I have my weekends free. So I took tap dancing lessons, and I also <laughs> took... <laughs> I took this um, class with Philippe Halsman in psychological portraiture. And I love photography. There was never a point I didn't love photography, but I didn't really see it as the most important thing at that point. But I took this class, and it just really sort of opened another door. And um, at the end of the class, he asked me while I, while I was studying fashion design, and I just froze. I wanted to crawl under the table. <laughs> and he said, you know, you're a good photographer. You should pursue photography. Uh, we became really good friends. He used to come see me at the UN. I applied to Pratt, and I got in. I quit FIT, and the UN gave me a job at night. I worked from 6 to 2.30 at night and went to Pratt wow. during the day. And I did that for two years. And then I went back to a day job. 
But that was amazing. My teachers at Pratt were, um, well, I had many really great teachers at Pratt. Um, Helen Levitt was one of them. Yeah, which is amazing. I know. I think it's the only class where she really taught the whole semester. She did many lectures and things like that, uh, guest lectures. But yeah, she would write us a postcard every week and tell us what we would be talking about or looking at. It wasn't a big class. You know, I think we were eight people. But still, that's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> Maybe what was it not really understood then how important Helen was in the canon of... No, we, we already knew. Yeah, <laughs> but yet only we eight students. Knew. I wish I could go back in time and get in that class. I know. I wish I could go back and savor it a little bit more. It was, mm-hmm. it was amazing. But when you're, you're young like that, you just, you don't take it for granted, but you're just... There's you're so much it. going on. You're yeah. in it and you're enjoying it and, you know, taking in every word she said. But still wish I had recordings and pictures mm-hmm. and <laughs> that kind of thing. Alan Newman was also my teacher. Mm-hmm. I had a view camera class with him. And everybody had to learn how to use the view camera. But for me, it was transformative because mm-hmm. I always thought I was... Cartier-Bresson, going around with the 35, working really Uh quickly. But it was never really, it never really clicked with me. I mean, I made some good pictures that way. But as soon as I had the camera on the tripod and I went under the focusing cloth, it changed everything. Mm -hmm. I could pause. I could look carefully. There's nobody, no reason to hurry. I mean, I could move quickly if I had to, but I really felt that I could feel the earth move under my feet. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just different. And uh, I kind of never look back from that point. I mean, I use a small camera. I've always had a small camera with me. It's a different mindset when I use that. But I feel like my real work is done with a big camera. Yeah. And you've, you got bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Kind of so <laughs> when did you wind up at Yale? So I went back to work during the day. And then in, let me see, so I went to Yale from 79 to 81. In 77, I started working for the Law of the Sea Conference at the UN. And I was working in Geneva part of the year and in New York part of the year. I worked for them till I left. And it was a great job. I loved it. I loved all the people I work with. And everybody was, you know, I'd show people my photographs and they would be very complimentary. But at one point I thought, I really need to be in a critical forum around people that really kind of get what I'm doing or Mm -hmm. can put in something that comes from somewhere else. I mean, I really appreciated all the help that they gave me an interest, but I thought, Walker Evans, okay, I'm going to apply to Yale Mm -hmm. because of Walker. And even though he wasn't there anymore, you know, he had passed away, I thought, well, that tradition is where I feel I'm linked. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly enough, I got in. (laughs) And (laughs) uh, I know, it's just, again, you know, one of those things that really... That's what I wanted to do. It's the only place I applied to. There weren't that many places at that point in 1979. Right. But I kept my job at the UN and I worked, you know, holidays and I worked in the summers. I went to work in Geneva, um, which is really helpful, all that to pay in my, for my school. And I kept working at the UN until I went to China in 84. 
But even after I came back from China, I went and I worked for another six months when I came back. It was very hard to leave the UN. You know, regular paycheck, really interesting. You know, it opened my eyes to the world. I mean, which is mm-hmm. why I think I'm always taking every opportunity I can get to see more of it. I mean, there's certain places that are more important to me than others, but working in Europe was remarkable. I went to every place that I could on the weekends. And before and after the conference, I would take some extra time and drive to where Van Gogh made his um, paintings mm-hmm. to try to understand it or to England to see Constable's landscape, you know, where he made his paintings. And I'm a big fan of art history. I've taken so many classes over the years when I was a student. I'm interested in the history of the world through art. You know, when you're at Yale and and thinking about the type of work you're making and thinking about the influence um, and importance of someone like Walker Evans, all around you, the pictures generation is sort of moving in and becoming a dominant force. Are you aware of that at that time? Or is, you know, how did you think about that? Or did you think about it at all, this this very different movement that was starting up? I don't think I was aware of it. I mean, after, of course, I was, but not Mm -hmm. so much during that time. You know, we had so many interesting guests at Yale. You know, Robert Frank came up, Gary Winogrand, Helen Levitt, you know, so many different people that were working at the time. But I guess it wasn't Todd's sort of thing to bring that in, you know. Yeah, you're talking about Todd Papa Todd George. Papa George, yeah. yeah. But so he, he worked really hard to bring us interesting people, and I I loved all the people that came there. So Yeah, no, I mean, it, it sort of also was an amazing period at Yale. Right. You know, Walker, as you said, his influence was still really strong there. Todd Papa George was there. Richard Benson was probably the head of the department. And... Todd was the head of the department okay. then. I had met... Richard, in 1977, he had printed this um, Tina Madotti show that was at the MoMA, mm-hmm. and I got the address from the photo department, and I wrote him a letter and told him what I was doing, you know, because at that point I was making platinum prints. I got a research grant when I was an undergraduate at Pratt and with Alan Newman, my teacher, to make platinum prints. So... From that point on, I was making platinum prints. So so it's like late 1973. In 77, after I saw that show, I'm like, oh, my God, if I could only talk to him. And that's when I wrote him. And he wrote me back and said, oh, Lois, just come up. And Uh (laughs) I'm saying in his voice because, I mean, it's like there in the writing. So I went up and I stayed in his house. At that point, he had two houses that he bought and he hadn't joined them together, but he was telling me the story about how he's going to do that, which he eventually did, and showed me the shop and introduced me to the people that were working with him and for him. And um, at the end of the day, we looked at prints and we traded prints. I mean, I was just like blown away with his generosity. Do you want to tell people who Richard Benson was because to some of us, I never, I think I maybe met him once really briefly, but even not not knowing him, I feel I know him to some extent. And his right. contribution to photography is, is really legendary among certain people. And it, I think it's important to not lose that 
as we sort of are in this digital age. So can you just just talk briefly about about Richard? Well, Richard was a genius. He was a generous person. He knew and appreciated all the processes, films, whatever, from the beginning. And at this point, when I met him, he was printing the Paul Strand portfolio in Platinum. But he knew photogravure. He knew, obviously, platinum printing, you know, all kinds of printing. But he was making photo books. And I guess he started by looking at Meridian. And I don't know whether he was making halftones in the beginning. I'm not really quite sure exactly, because it seems like he was always doing everything to do with the process. He was certainly when I met him. Yeah, his contribution to the photo book and the quality of the photo book I, you know, it was I just... mean, it changed. If if you think of any great photo book, mm-hmm. probably Richard had something very important to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think every every book of Lee Friedlander was done by Richard, mm-hmm. and then later Thomas Palmer, who was one of his students. You know, mm-hmm. who was actually I met him then too. He was work. He was very young. He was working with Richard. Passing on knowledge. Yeah. It's hard to know where to begin with Richard because he's just, he knew so much and was very generous and unpretentious with his way of sharing it. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no conceit. There was just generosity. No, thank you. I I think it's important to mention um, that and not lose that thread. So you go through Yale and when do you first, you know, you have a number of bodies of work that are made over decades using large format. You're particularly well-known, just to zoom out here for a little bit, you're particularly well-known for using a banquet camera or panorama negative. You can tell us a little bit about what that means, what those dimensions are, and how, how you use that camera and why you use that camera. And I'd also like you to just tell us a bit about you know, working long term, extremely well known for your work in China, the American West, and how you think about working for decades on projects. Well, I don't think you start off thinking you're going to be working on something for decades. You just right. keep working until I guess you think you're finished. And in some cases, you know, that's fairly easy to recognize in other times. Mm-hmm. It just seems like you'll never finish that body of work. When I was at Yale, we had to take elective classes every semester, except for the last semester when we're working on our exhibition. And I took all of mine, of course, in art history. And because I was at Yale, I really wanted to take advantage of what they had there. So I took a British um, landscape painting at the time of um, Constable at the British Art Center. And then I thought, well, my last semester, my next last semester, my last year, I thought, well, I'd take something that I didn't know anything about. (laughs) So I took a class in Chinese landscape painting from the Ming Dynasty with Richard Barnhart. And uh, I arrived at the class. Class is amazing, but everybody spoke fluent Chinese, and they knew what they were talking about and looking at. And I'm like, after the class, I asked Richard Barnhart, Dr. Barnhart, if I could um, drop the class. And he said, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) And he said, "Um, you'll bring something different and you'll ask different questions. So I really felt emboldened by by that remark. And Mm -hmm. a couple classes later, we were looking at these paintings that were made along the Lee River 
in Guangxi province. And there were these almost like fantastical mountains. And, you know, they look Dr. Seussian. They didn't really look like, you know, because they weren't just like foothills and mountains. They arose from the flat landscape almost straight up. And he said, um, well, they're act- it's actually a real landscape. These are karst formations. And along the Lee River is the greatest profusion of this particular archaeological phenomena, or whatever, physiological, whatever you call it. And so that just planted a little seed, and I knew that eventually I had to go there. But also, you know, seeing the elongated scrolls, even though when Chinese look at the scrolls, you know, when they used to look at them, when they were being made, you scroll and unscroll, and you kind of look only at, you know, your field of vision, and then you unscroll and scroll out, you know, another little piece and look at it. Yeah, like turning a page. Right. But then, you know, they started to show at the Met and other places as much of the scroll as they could. Mm-hmm. And I just like thought, oh my God, that's just opens up a whole nother chapter. And I knew that they made panoramic cameras. And um, so I did a little research. And I I found one, actually, while I was a graduate student, but it was in pieces. And my father later rebuilt that camera, built my film holders. And I started to use it in 1982. I graduated from Yale in 81. But that class in Chinese landscape painting really changed my way of seeing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to immediately, I was at the time I was using the 8x10, which is a more classical shape. We'll get right. it from painting. So a lot of things changed my life while I was at Yale. And that's an important part of it. And how did you wind up in China? So, you know, I had this idea to, to go there because eventually go there because of this landscape. And in 1982, like I said, I started using the camera, and I ended up in Louisiana teaching at LSU in 1983. And it's a very languid landscape. It's very flat, but things rise out of the landscape, like the sugarcane factories and, you know, the swamps. You know, if you're really close, they seem to rise out of this flatness and in a surprising way. And I thought, well, this seems to like the Guilin landscape. <laughs> And I think I'll apply for a Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, and, and also I was on Avery Island. I felt like there were clues everywhere that I should do this because Avery Island has like a Chinese temple. Avery uh-huh. Island has the McElhenney hot sauce. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's a very famous sauce. I, I and, don't think I've had it, but I, I, okay. I've, I've, but I have been in that part of... Of Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Louisiana, yep. So while I was down there, well, I thought I should write from there, you know, because it's when I, you know, it was, I was there in the fall. You have to apply in October, which is coming up. So I thought, well, you know, I'm 99% sure I'm not going to get it, but why not apply? Put my name out there. You hear that, and, everyone who's listening? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a good it's a good thing to try to write down in a solid way what you want to do or what you mm-hmm. think you could do if you're yep. in this particular place. And um, a few months later, I went to get my mail. I got this very thin envelope in it from the Guggenheim Foundation. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, it's, it's just an apology to say I didn't get it. <laughs> and then I, you know, was walking in the street and I opened it. 
not ready to burst into tears, but to sort of acknowledge that I didn't. And it said that I did. That's amazing. I know. I was just like, I wanted everybody around me, you know, which is nobody I knew, in the street to, like, read my letter. So that's how I finally went. So I went in the fall of 1984. And I was there for nine months. And uh, it wasn't what I expected. I didn't do exactly what I thought I would do. But I, I did something more and different. And it was really hard, but also very inspiring. And I came back for, I didn't develop any film. I'm just traveling with all my film all the time. And back then, I didn't have a changing bag, so I had to change my film at night, you know, because you have to load the film holders in the dark. I had brought plastic, black plastic with me, and I taped it over the windows in a bathroom, or I threw a, the bedclothes over the over a table and, and loaded my film under the table at night. I mean, you know, I did whatever I could. I mean, I even loaded film under the bed, wherever I could find that it would be dark enough. And... I only took, the most I could take is 10 sheets in a day. So I had five holders. Each holder has two sheets, one on each side. And some days I wish I had 50. And other days, you know, maybe I only took two or three. You mm-hmm. know, there wasn't, you know, so sometimes you felt restricted and the other times you felt like it's okay. So you mm-hmm. measure it, you measure it. Like I remember taking this picture of the ladder leaning against a tree in Hangzhou. And, you know, it takes me a while to set up things. And by the time I set it up, there were like a couple hundred people peering over my shoulder and gathered around my camera. And then when I got ready to make the exposure, because I was only going to make one, I, um, you know, just asked everybody to not go in front of the camera. And I took my exposure. And then immediately somebody goes and looks right into the lens but I only made one exposure. And I just kept thinking the whole time I was traveling, because that was in the fall. I mean, I was there until almost the summer. And I worried about that picture. I was so happy when I developed it that there wasn't a, fa- a blurry face in front of the, mm-hmm. in the middle of it. Yeah, I didn't double up on anything, which is kind of scary in, yeah, in retrospect. Is. I mean, yeah. I still don't. I really, you know, try to. I wouldn't even say be economical, but be very, you know, by the time I get ready to make the picture, you know, I could spend hours setting it up, you know, just to to get it right. Tell us how many times now you've you've been to China, because it's pretty extraordinary. Well, I started going in 1984. I was there, 84, 85, and uh, I came back. I was back for six months, and and I went for another six months, and... Then after that, I went every year, sometimes twice a year for a couple months each time. I mean, as with an academic schedule, I ended up teaching after I got back. And I, I started teaching at Yale in 1991, and in 1998, I had a sabbatical, so I could take six months again. But every year, except for 1989, because of Tiananmen, I couldn't get a visa in time. And, of course, during the... I was there in 2019. I was um, photographing and teaching in Hangzhou. And I recently went back. I went. I was in Hong Kong. I mean, I hadn't been back for four years. It was really kind of shocking. I had an artist-in-residence at CUHK, Chinese University of Hong Kong, in 
February, March. And then I went in June for a month to the mainland because they dropped the restrictions on the visa and my 10-year visa was, was good. But it was incredibly hot. But I was so happy to be there. I was just so thrilled. I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's like a drug, but it's, you know, the work I do there is kind of never ending. You know, it's like you turn the pages in a book and that book is, it's pretty long. You, uh, in another interview, uh, we're talking about uh, Eugene Ache, and you said he put all the money into his work, but look what right. he's given us. It's profound and encyclopedic, a life's work. That's what right. I aspire to at the end of my life, to have that body of work, not fame, not fortune, not recognition. I have enough right now. I mean, it seems like that's exactly how you've lived your life in that Ache sort of way of being dedicated, not giving up on a place and being encyclopedic in your photographic description of it, which is pretty unusual uh, these days and really incredible. So I loved reading that because I was like, that, that's, yeah, that's so what you do. Well, definitely. He's, he's my inspiration, one of my real heroes. When you start on something, I mean, after I came back after six months, I realized I didn't have anything. What did I know? What, what did I, I mean, I did have something, but what did I know? I mean, it's 5,000 years of history. What can I know in nine mm -hmm. months? And every time I go, I revisit things. I start other projects and learn new things. I mean, I, you know, I have a life in China. I have friends after all these years, you know, it took a while. You know, I met a group of artists, and, and that keeps expanding. And, yeah, I mean, I feel very inspired when I'm there, but I don't exactly always know what I'm doing, or maybe I never do. I just mm -hmm. keep turning the pages of, of history backwards. I've always been interested in the history of a place. And a lot of times there's no markers of that history. And, you know, you can read a lot and then when you're standing in the actual place of where something took place, there's nothing that really says, well, this is the place. So you have to conjure mm -hmm. it up somehow, that history. And so that's what I've been trying to do over the years, not just there, but other places I photograph, like the Navajo Reservation. There are no monuments. And so how, how can you recall that history and talk about it? I mean, I make portraits too, but it's, it's hard. And you have a connection to Native American culture. Yes, yes. My, my grandmother was um, Cree, and, you know, I listened to her stories and looked at her collection of pictures, which weren't of Native Americans. She had this collection of um, stereo photographs, and, you know, they could have been pretty generic, but they seemed pretty magical to me. Mm -hmm. uh, they were of, of the world. You know, she, you know, maybe she only had 30 but I looked at them very intensely. And with the stereo viewer, you could go right inside like you were standing in that place. Mm -hmm. It's three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. You've looked through a stereo viewer, right? Oh, yeah. It's incredible. It's, it is magical. Yeah. Especially with how sort of simple the apparatus seems, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's like going into a Cornell box. Mm -hmm. But it's a landscape, or it's a still life. And, and I've made stereo pictures. I, I've had stereo cameras, and I would like to get a 5.7 stereo. 
you know, I have a lot of things I, I want to do. Let me ask you about something else you said that I really, really love. And I want to understand it from your point of view. You said it a bit more. And I, I think it's just another thing that's really a teachable moment. You said, my challenge is bending and twisting what the camera faithfully describes into something of fiction to give form and meaning to what exists in front of me. With the confluence of light, circumstance, chance, and a dozen other factors, I attempt to conjure up a world, one seemingly half-imagined and breathing with a life of histories. I just love this. This is, of course, how I feel about photography, that (laughs) wonderful coming together of the real with the artist's inner life, their imagination. And I just wonder if you could just talk generally about that concept and how, where's the balance? How does one balance those two things? You know, this very important, more portentous, sober history, whether it's this long history of China or Native Americans or the Native American landscape or the Western American landscape with your imagination and what's going on inside of you. How, how, do you, how do you think about balancing those things? When you're actually making the picture, you're not even thinking. You know, you're responding in a visceral way. And I think it's like preparing. You know, you have an idea of what you might. This is just me. Okay, this is what I do. I do a lot of research in, in terms of China. One of my closest friends is Jeremy Barme, who's a sinologist, and I met him in 1996. We've been working together and in consultation with each other since 1998 in person. And I learn a lot. I feel like I'm always on a PhD thing when I'm with him because I just mm-hmm. learn so much. And, and you don't know where you're going to put that knowledge, how you're going to apply it, but it's there. It's like inside of you. And I mean, I do other research, logistical research, like how can I get to a particular place? Where is this? Um, When do I think that the best season would be to go to this particular place? But when I'm photographing, when you're under that focusing cloth, looking through the ground glass, I mean, it's upside down and backwards. So it's already abstracted in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's, It's cordoned off by that rectangle. And in my case, the panoramic rectangle. And you just manipulate it. I mean, you've already done your work to get there, and you have your own history. I mean, sometimes nothing's right, and you don't make a picture there. And, you know, you wait around, and you look, and, you know, twisting it, it's it's just like, it's not a like a, a photo trick or anything. It's just, you know, I don't even ha- know how to explain it. It doesn't, it's this magic that happens between me and the place and what I've studied and the, you know, my heroes, they're whispering things. It's not really, in some ways, it's not explainable. I explained it the best in that paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it there then. But I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how the form of the picture changes also the meaning. Mm -hmm. And so when I started using the panoramic camera, it took me a while, but I thought, well, why didn't I put two together or three together or five together? And I I started doing that. And it, it's like I had every format. Everybody has every format if they really want it. Mm-hmm. You can put two eight by tens together to make mm-hmm. a panorama. But, you know, I guess that's, that's the influence of the Chinese scroll. You know, I felt like that 
already the single panorama has a different kind of narrative than a eight by ten. And I'm interested in how your eye travels across the frame to read that and how you have to put it together in a different way in order to make it readable. It's almost like, you know, you have to learn a different way of expressing yourself through poetry than you do through prose. It's experience, it's being out there. During the pandemic, I started using yeah, a I was circle gonna, yeah, and an oval. You're taking me and, where I was going, yeah. Okay, well, so you please, can answer your question please. then. No, no I mean, no, I just, I... <laughs> I mean, it was, in each case, there's a long history, you know, like, like I said before, there's a long history of panoramic photography, but there's also a long history of Chinese scroll painting. And so there's a lot to look at out there. Um, mm -hmm. With the circle... I mean, for me, it's always been a magical form. First of all, the lens records a circle. Yeah, so and tell some people of the, what, what this work is, because now it's like, so it's not a secret between you Should I not explain the circle? <laughs> no, explain the, explain the circle, but ex, ex, so, because I, I sort of cut you off saying I was going to ask you about it, but so during yeah. the pandemic, you started making, you went back to the 810 with a... Uh, well, I've always a, still used the, I've, I've continued right, to use the yeah. 810. Nothing disappears in my work. I just still right, use yeah. a 4 by 5 8x10, 717, and actually, during the pandemic, I started using 11 by 14 which is really crazy. It's so much heavier, so much bigger. But boy, when mm -hmm. you go under that ground glass, that is so magical, <laughs> unbelievable. It takes all the weight away. Um, and it was actually because I wanted to make bigger circles and ovals in contact. So, you know, I've always found the circle fascinating. You know, some of the earlier photographs were just circles because they just, you know, the camera records a circle. Lens is a circular thing. You know, of course, to bow down to painting, they put a rectangle inside, so photography became a rectangular thing. But I thought the circle was such a great idea. <laughs> so, I, you know, there's many people like Emmett Gowan, Sally Mann. Over the years, many people in our generation have made, you know, circular pictures. I'm looking at a picture of Irving Penn. It's a painting, but it's a circle. Of course, there's Chinese paintings that are circles and ovals. So during the pandemic, I didn't really know what was going on like everybody else. And, you know, my classes went to Zoom. And, you know, my brother said, oh, we should come down to Pennsylvania at least for a while. And so I went down to Pennsylvania. And I had just seen a show, a Monet show at the Denver Art Museum. And uh, in that show were three circular paintings of water lilies. I'm like... This has to be a sign. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I, had, I had gone the year before to Gervinet. I, I can't say it right. Anyway, to see them where Monet painted these, his, his place, Gervinet. You're just not committing to the French accent. We need Matthew here to... I know, I know. That's why I don't want to embarrass anybody that's <laughs> French, you know. <laughs> anyway, I, so, you know, the all... Of the old view cameras have these little slots in them. So you could take a, a full frame and you could take a panorama or you could take four plates. You could take quarter plate, full plate, um, or two panoramas horizontal or vertically. And so it has these slots with a spring inside. And I have a Deerdorf. I have two. Uh, the first one I got when I was a student, four by five, five, seven. 
And so when I was down there, I showed Andy, my brother's name's Andy, you know, the back of the camera and how these things slide back and forth. I mean, he understood immediately. And I said, "I, I need a circle and it needs to be beveled and I need an oval too. So he made those for me to fit into these slots. And I started. I didn't want to, I mean, with Photoshop, you can do everything later. But I, I really feel I've always been committed to actually seeing the thing. Because how you, can you manipulate it? There's so many infinite possibilities when you're out in the landscape. But there's even more if you're inside. I want to see what I'm doing. And the circle for me so different from the rectangle because it doesn't really have any beginning and any end. Where does your eye start in the middle? So in a way, it's a, it's a harder format. And the oval, you know, I was working on them both immediately because I feel, feel like they're related, but also at the same time very different because the oval kind of stretches like the panorama. You know, that, that's how I started and then when I came back to New York, you know, I, I was using it 2020, 2021, and I'm still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm learning every day. So we're going to wrap up, but let me just ask you are, you, are you teaching at Penumbra Foundation these days? Or Because I yes. have a feeling, okay, I, I can't imagine that we're not going to have people listening to this episode with your loving and incredibly animated descriptions of the cameras that you use and all the possibilities, I can't imagine people aren't going to, or at least in the tri-state area, going to think, I I have to try try this. I want to fall in love with my equipment the way Lois is clearly in love with her equipment. And so you are at the Penumbra Foundation, which is a wonderful photographic organization, school, etc. So people should should check that out. Go yeah, take a class. Yeah, I mean, the way Lois. I feel about all these different formats is it's like a different language in each case. Yep. And you don't throw away the other language. It just becomes part of your of the possibilities of speaking and describing and one doesn't replace the other. Does that oh, make sense? Of course. And it's really beautiful. I really love hearing you talk about everything. And it's the most, in some ways, you know, there's tech in this conversation, but it's not the kind of tech that is goofy and unnecessary and just obscures the artist's vision. I mean, the way you work with your technology is so holistic and intuitive and is just a part of your expression. And it's really beautiful. And also, you know, as someone who really loves, I'm sorry, but I I really love darkroom technology and the object that is put out from that, which is to say, platinum, palladium, gelatin, silver, prints. It's wonderful to hear someone talk about that. So, Lois, thank you so much for being on the podcast and hanging out with me this morning. I've loved it, and I look forward to seeing you when I'm in the city and getting a meal. Matthew, if you're listening, let us know when we can come over. I'm putting in a request for the lasagna. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm putting in a request for the Dan Dan noodles. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Maybe we could just have we could or have the foie gras. <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, I just got a picture from him from France I did this too. morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Matthew wanting to make us jealous, um, which which is always he always succeeds. Anyway, all right, Lois. Thank you so so much. And thank you. It yeah. was a great honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Lois. All right. Be well. Thank you. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.